Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Matt Wynn, and this week we're speaking to Janet Gregory and Lisa Crispin. We've invited them on. This is your second time on the pod, isn't it? Is that right? It, it is. We're so honored and excited. Well, we're honored to have you. Um, we've invited you on particularly because um, the, you, you've taken the time to condense uh, your your classic work, Agile Testing, which I'm waving around and I've had on my bookshelf for many years, um, into a, a, a new, uh, yeah, condensed version. Well, actually, it's both, both of our books, more Agile Testing as well. And plus, and plus, and plus more stuff that we learned since then. So there's a lot of stuff condensed yeah. in there. It, it, it's it's five years since we put out our last book. That's our seems to be our cadence. That's your cadence. Yeah. I was going to ask you how it was you managed to uh, write the book so quickly. <laughs> but if it's been five years, then that really answers that question. <laughs> <clears throat> we have to be able to forget the pain of writing the last one before we can write another one. <laughs> yeah, I Sounds at least fair. have stopped saying I'll never do that again because I also co-wrote one with Tip House in 2001 and I said it then, so I don't learn. <laughs> so so quick introductions. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you can hear uh, my, my colleague Seb Rose um, on, the, on the podcast. Uh, so he's helping me to to uh, to have this conversation with Jan- with Janet and Lisa and um, Lisa and Janet. Do you want to tell the, the listeners a little bit about just in case for the the small minority of them who may not have heard of you already? Um, what should they know about you? You go first, Lisa. Oh, I was going to tell you to go first. Um, let's see. I am. Uh, I've been a hands on tester on agile teams for the past couple of decades uh and just you know agile agile changed my life (laughs) and obviously had the privilege of working with janet on these books and developing courses and video courses and doing lots and lots of conference tutorials together um so I just enjoy learning stuff and trying to share that out with other people. Currently, I'm a testing advocate with Mabel, which is a test tool vendor. And um, I live in Vermont with my husband and my donkeys and dogs and cats. Yeah, and I'm Janet Gregory. And uh, I started testing on Agile teams about 20 years ago. But I won't talk about what I did before, which was you know a little bit of programming, and then I was testing on on a um, I say waterfall, but it really wasn't. It was chaotic. <laughs> but <laughs> I started uh, working on agile teams. <clears throat> excuse me, and um, then I had the honor of writing our first book with Lisa Crispin, of course, my lovely colleague here. And then my whole world changed because I started doing consulting and training and uh, moved into a whole different world for me. And so I get to see lots of different teams, um, really big organizations, uh, really small teams, um, but everybody who's having, you know, a little bit of trouble with their testing when it comes to uh, how do we actually make that work. So that's where I spend my life these days. Good. So you've got that big, broad perspective. So maybe that's a good yeah. place to start is kind of thinking about that, that, that journey. So, I mean, there's, there's the time since you published the first book, um, but also, like, I guess the time since you both got started in the industry altogether. How, how do you think 
testing and the industry generally has changed in that time? Like what, what, are the, what are the things you're seeing that are different today? Well, <clears throat> when we're thinking about it from an agile perspective, from agile teams, I know in, I think I met, physically met Lisa for the first time in 2002 at uh, XB Universe Conference in Chicago. Um, and at that point, there were, I think, three testers at the Agile Conference. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, myself, and Brian Merrick. He still identified as tester there. But um, it, it's not a, that part of it. People accept that Agile teams can have testers on them and, and be very... Um, very active, but the industry as a whole goes up and down. Somebody will say, we don't need testers. And so then you'll see people leaving and going to other teams and, and then it realizes that, no, we really do need testers. So it's been going up and down, I don't know, for the last two decades, I think, whenever somebody new comes around and says, we don't need it. But they learn that it's helpful to have a tester on a team. Yeah, same here. Um, you know, people, I got into testing back in the early 90s, and people were already saying then that automation would replace testers. <laughs> How's that going? Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I have a, like Janet, I have a, a programming background as well. And um, I do think it's, I think Agile has helped the testing community or profession evolve in that it kind of opened our eyes to all the different places we could add value, not testing after the fact. Although on waterfall teams, I always tested requirements and I always went, you know, elbowed my way into analysis meetings and design meetings. It's not that we couldn't do that before, but it made it easier to do that because we got put on cross-functional teams and we got to learn a lot more stuff because we're collaborating with people in other roles. So I think it it helped to evolve the tester role. And um, I, uh, I like the modern testing principles that uh, Brent Jensen and Alan Page have come up with on their AB testing podcast. I mean, I don't agree with them 100%, but I think they're on the right track that one of the most valuable things we can do as testers, because we never have enough testers and there's always more testing to do, is to help other people on the team learn testing skills and help them learn, you know, we got to build the quality in, we got to bake yeah. the quality in. So Lisa, I think, oh, we've what? been saying that all along too. We have been saying that all along. That's true. That's true. But they codified it in the principles. Now we had principles too, that in our first book, somebody asked on Twitter yesterday, um, well, we got the 10 principles for agile testers and those are cool. And how do they fit with the modern testing principles? Thought, oh, that's a good question. I think they're complimentary. That's um, a good blog post. Oh, yeah. Good idea, Janet. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. So I do think, you know, acting as consultants to the team um, is, is a really valuable way that I've been able to, to help, especially because it doesn't scale if you have, you know, one or two testers for 20 or 30 developers. In fact, our I was just going to mention that in our condensed book, our new book, chapter 11, I think it is, is um, some of our, our trainers have actually put together um, what they think a tester role is in today's world. And 
it's interesting to see the different perspectives. It shows what kind of teams they've been working on or working with. Um, and I think that is, so the role will depend on the team you're working in. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, the team, the business domain, people who say, oh, we don't need testers are usually, when people who tell me that, I look at it and say, like, what product do they work on? They're usually working on a product whose audience is developers. So yes, they're domain experts. Uh, if they were on a financial services application or medical software, would they feel differently? I think so. So I wonder, what's your perspective about whether we are in our own little agile bubble? Um, a few people have been asking this question of me recently. Uh, most recently, Kat Swettle was asking on Twitter over the weekend about what, what practices that we take for granted do you think haven't been widely adopted? And, you know, uh, agile testing, we go to the same conferences, we talk to the same people. Um, but Janet, you and I go in and consult at companies and yes. I still see testers not really being integrated with the team, even though they're nominally on the team, they've got a different. So anyway, what, what do you, how widespread do you think is this actual adoption of agile testing as opposed to uh, its, its, uh, its visibility in the literature and the conference circuit? Yeah, I, it's funny because when I read Kat's uh, tweet on there too, I started thinking about it. And, and Lisa and I have had this conversation as well, because, <clears throat> you know, Lisa has this depth of working on a team. And um, now that she's talking to other teams, it's a little more. But for a while, when I'd say, yeah, I just went in and did some training or some consulting with this team, and they are so far away from continuous integration, right? And I remember Lisa going, what? But that's where teams still are. There are still so many teams that do not understand continuous integration. So, or, or are having a hard time getting there, right? So I think that speaks for itself. There's still a lot of teams out there that are um, struggling. I think that the agile principles and, and thinking about how we can do it better can help them, but there's still a long way away from being able to um, truly adopt a lot of them. Yeah. I. I definitely lived in unicorn land for the past couple decades, and um, and when I joined Mabel, I started sitting in on like sales calls and demos and training for customers, and I mean I was just shocked. It's just like you you do what, you know? People are testing like we tested in the '90s, and you know we had automation in the '90s, but these, they don't even have automation. And if if to me, if teams are not embracing practices like continuous integration, which to me is a, a complete basic practice, and, um, and test-driven development or at least automating unit tests and, and, and some of these other core practices, it kind of doesn't matter how many testers they have because <laughs> the testers would never be able to, to keep up with all the badness going on in their product. They can't sustain it long-term. I mean, I do think it's getting better. At least people are trying to get better. At least they're aware that there are other ways to work. But Lots more teams do it well than used to not do it well. You can look at the state of DevOps survey results and see, you know, high-performing teams would get more every year. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just change is slow, very yeah. slow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree. Uh, I'm, I wonder sometimes about our stats as well, about uh, improvement, because the software world is growing so fast 
that maybe it's growing faster than the messages <laughs> getting out. Who knows? That's true. It's difficult to track these <laughs> metrics, isn't it? Well, and, and some of those, the teams have been living in their own bubble and they think Agile is new, right? Sure. And so it's, yeah, it is what it is, slowly. So I would like to then just drill back onto your book because there, I believe the subtitle is a, is it an introduction to Agile? A brief test? introduction. A brief introduction. And yes. yet right at the beginning on the page IV, which is almost like four, but Roman or something, it says this book is not an introductory testing book. So I wonder if you could ah. position, <laughs> uh, position the book for us. You're a good tester, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> so what we wanted... Um, our first two books are huge. They're over 500 pages. We didn't master the uh, ability to be concise. <clears throat> um, even though we cut down the first book quite a bit from what it should, was originally. <laughs> um, but what we found was that they were intimidating. A lot of people would look at it and just go, I, where do I even start? So the goal of this book was to try to... Um, condense it into the salient points, I guess. So it's an introduction in the fact that it's um, so not into testing, like how do you test, but how do you use some of the practices to help on agile teams, right? And the same with, um, uh, it's not on how do you do agile, but how do you incorporate testing into your Agile projects. So it's really trying to be um, just a little bit of information. Um, sometimes I think that it might be a little bit of information enough to be dangerous <laughs> without really truly understanding some of the depth that goes into that. We do have, I mean, our, our goal also is to, if people are interested in a topic or need to learn more, we provided yes. lots and lots of links to places that they can learn more like the discovery books, for example. Yes. So it's, it's hope, you know, our other books are not intended to be read cover to cover. We hope people would dive in wherever they were the most interested, but not everybody wants to do that. And so this way they can have a quick read, less than a hundred pages and, um, and see what they're most interested in. And we also wanted a high level view of it for, um, for managers, not to insult any managers listening, but managers don't always have time to read a 550 page book. Yeah. And, um, and so people, you know, people who don't understand even testing very well, we're hoping they can read this book and say, Oh, okay, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why quality is important. Here's why we need to make that investment yes. in quality. And here's how we can support our team in doing that. That sounds good. Thank you. Is there, is there a um, audio version of this book either available or coming? Not yet. <clears throat> I thought about it um, a while ago. Somebody asked me that very same question. I thought, um, because we've been asked that on the other books, and we just said no, because <laughs> they're just too big. <laughs> but, but this would be one that we could probably put into an audio version. I never thought of that. And I listen to audio books all the time. Be nice for those busy managers, right? They can just listen to it on the way to work. Sitting in the traffic part, jam. Though, is the you know it has a lot of visuals in it, so mm. I'm not sure how to handle but those. It's yeah. 
I don't know what they do with audiobooks with the visuals. Well, they give you a CD or something or a website where you can download them. But when I listen on Audible, I don't have those to hand. So no, I know they just well. Sometimes they try and describe the diagram, don't they? In in, Yeah. yeah. I tried to listen to one of Johanna Rothman's books, which she reads. So, I, you know, I love hearing her voice, uh-huh. but it was like the, the, you know, the graphs are actually important and I got lost. So, so actually talking of diagrams, um, one of the things I've been struggling with lately is to, is trying to draw BDD in, in a sort of like nice high level introductory graphic. Right. Um, and it's, uh, hard. It's, it's really hard. Yeah. And because it, it's all about loops, it's all about feedback loops, and and it needs to be a model rather than a like complete flow chart, right? It just needs to be a sort of indicative. Um, what I actually ended up with is is one that looks a lot like the XP loops. One, if you know what I mean, red so green a, refactor, yeah, those yeah. ones. Um, no, the the kind of concentric uh, feedback loops. So there's one that's like a really big one for release planning, and then there's a smaller one which is or, I don't know, user story refinement, and they get the loops get smaller and smaller and smaller until you oh, go down okay. to pair programming, I think. And it sort of talks about the cadence, the frequency of the loops. Anyway, um, I really liked, when I was flicking through your book, uh, that you reference um, Ellen Gotterstein and Mary Gorman's um, yes. infinite loop. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you talk a bit about that, about why you like that model for, for software rather than the sort of production line metaphor of... <laughs> you know, widgets coming in one side and, oh, and okay. coming out the other I'll jump end. in on this one mm-hmm. because one of the I, – I wrote a blog post a while ago about why I hate the term shift left because <laughs> I really don't like that linear line because that's really not what we're, what we're doing. When we're doing um, product delivery, which most teams are doing um, or moving to, It's not a starter end. The starter end is for projects where you throw it over the wall for somebody else to do stuff and things. Whereas the infinite loop is, you know, we come in, we start, and we just keep going and and iterating around all the time. It's a continuous feedback loop, right? Um, So to me, that tells us that it's going to come back around. So let's, let's make sure that we're, you know, constantly looking at it that way if that makes any sense whatsoever. I, I, you know, I'm with Janet on the shift left, shift right, except as I thought about it and looked at that loop more, it has a left side and a right side. Uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> so it does. I, I kind of gave up the battle because it's just so pervasive. It's just like, uh-huh. it's just like I don't want people to call testers QAs, but everybody does. Um, but, I mean, it is true. We can focus both on the left side of the loop and the right side of the loop. And we, you know, we ought to, um, continuous testing. We love Dan Ashby's continuous testing. Yeah. Uh, diagram as well. Um, some people will say continuous testing and they, all they mean is automated testing, continuous integration. And we're like, no, 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 no. There's this whole loop. So, yeah. um, yeah. Cause I think about sh- shift left as, uh, like if you look at a task board, you know, if you have a, a team have a, a, a physical board on the wall that represents right. the work they're doing, the work tends to move from left to right and get, you know, more firmed up and finished as it moves to the right. And so shift left works for me as a metaphor in that context of like, 
I want to be doing the testing more on the left-hand side of the board than, than you know, moving the testing to the left-hand side of the board to happen earlier. What it makes me afraid of is if you're looking at a task board, which 90% of the teams don't have a physical task board anymore. They're in JIRA or some other tool. Um, so all in Jira, the left right it. becomes irrelevant. But um, also what I'm afraid of is, is the same people who, who listen to testing is dead and fire all their testers will say, shift left. Oh, they mean big upfront requirements documents. Yeah. That's what my fear is. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to put in that with the online task force, I work for six years on the Pivotal Tracker team and Tracker's default is right to left flow, which I always <laughs> thought was so freaking bizarre. But I got yeah. used to it after a while. <laughs> So you don't have to go left to right. But I think culturally, you know, when we do graphs, up and to the right is usually good, right? So, so yeah. And then it's it's the people who say, well, no, you shift left, but now we have to shift right because of continuous delivery and we're doing more observing and monitoring and all of that stuff, brought in operations. So now they're shifting everywhere, which so becomes the, a continuous loop. The, the problem is... Uh, is it's pervasive. Uh, I know. We have a complex issue which we get tired of trying to explain in totality. So we come up with a catchy little catchphrase, which then allows people to entirely misinterpret what it's about, um, and then we get into these discussions about nomenclature. So, um, yes. and then we go back to describing it in big again. Uh, yes. <laughs> we really want people to learn, learn and test uh, throughout the process, and not limit it to the end. Is that, yes. is that a fair summation? That really is. Yes. And just an aside on BDD, I actually had a a, a lovely mo a lovely moment last week. I've I visited uh, a team at dealer.com in, in uh, Burlington, Vermont. And um, my friend there was showing me how they've started using BDD. And the part I love the best is that they started using it just to get the test specifications, just to get the shared understanding. They didn't They didn't start out automating them. And I thought, Yay. finally, somebody using Cucumber the way it was meant to be Yay. used. Now, they are starting to automate them, but they realize, that they realize where the value is. And I was like, that was great to see in the wild, and especially to see, you know, out at a place that is doing that transformation to, well, they're, they're somewhat away, away, it's away, you know, they've gotten pretty far in their agile journey, but still they're learning and, that's just nice to see. There are encouraging signs. Yes. Those are the ones that you walk away from and go, okay, <clears throat> making an impact. Yeah. There's people are reading, they're doing things. Yes. What do you think the typical pathways to fluency for teams are? Um, and what sort of major stopping points or plateaus do they do they get to on those pathways? Mm, interesting question. I, you want to take this one first? Well, I just was going to say I do like um, Diana Larson and James Shore's Agile Fluency model, although now I'm regretting I haven't looked at it in a while, so I couldn't tell you exactly what the levels are. Um, but if you think about the team you were just at, Lisa, where they're starting to do BDD, but using it as a conversation piece, where do you think they're going to level out and kind of hit a plateau? 
from a um, testing perspective? Well, I mean, actually, we've seen this data in this in the in the book Accelerate and the State of DevOps yep. results of a lot of teams that start doing automation, they get higher performing for a while and then they take a nosedive because all of a sudden now their automation is a problem because their tests are hard to maintain or they go overboard and have too many tests or they design them poorly or whatever. And so then they start struggling with that. So that might be, that might be the next step. Um, this is a, you know, this is a pretty savvy team that's doing a good job with moving towards continuous delivery and, and that but, sort of thing. But yeah, but that is something I see all the time too. And then they have to kind of stop, reset, try to figure out what that means. Um, and then they'll go a little bit better and, and then plateau someplace else trying to figure out, you know, something, some other kinds of things. So I'm not sure if it's the same for every team, but those are the sorts of things as they adopt any new practice, they'll go up for a little while and then they will plateau until, until they reach to the point where they need to do something else to get out of that. A lot of times that's where they will call in a consultant or something to kind of help them get out of that stuck place. I've, I've seen them in the teams I've been on, like, let's try this and we try something new and it works really well. And then for some reason we stopped doing it. Like, a team I was on years ago, we, we got really smart about how to slice features into small s slices. I have what Janet and Ardita call learning releases. We got really good at that. And it's like, oh, this is helping us so much. And then we didn't, that was on the UI. We didn't work on the UI for a while. We were working on like backend stuff more. And then we came back to work on the UI and we totally forgot to slice things up. <laughs> you know, it's like you can somehow get busy and heads down and just forget your good practices. So I think that's where obviously retros come in handy. I think a lot of times too, you know, it's a management problem. The managers are pushing for velocity and speed and get these features out. And people go back to old habits because old habits are comfortable and when they're stressed. So I think that that's the cause of some of the backsliding. So that's almost as if it's, it's not a one-way journey up with a few plateaus along the way. It's a, it's like snakes and ladders, or ah, that's a really good analogy. I love that. I mean, I think the way I think about it is like when you when you're you're trying to travel from one plateau to the next, it's it's a bit more like climbing, isn't it? That you know you might fall, and um, you might slip and fall back down again because de definitely, um, and and it requires quite a bit of energy, deliberate energy to get from one plateau to the next plateau right it does and i think this is this is one of the things i i got to uh spending a lot of time saying in sort of early engagements with consulting customers was make, trying to trying to assess whether they were really ready to make that investment and, and offer that support because that's the thing i think makes it really hard for teams to to make any kind of change is where they don't get that space to to make some mistakes and learn new stuff because they're just getting pushed right, right. so hard to keep on producing. Right. And, and it's that oh. sort of slowing down to speed up thing. Yes. I think the, the, the most that I get called in for is um, teams have adopted Agile and they think they're doing okay, but um, the testers aren't, they're not keeping up to say nicely, right? So the testers get blamed for being the bottlenecks. So that's what that mini waterfall comes in. 
I get, that's where I get called in. And that's the plateau is the team cannot go any faster. They can't go any, they can't, um, they never hit their, their magic because the testers are not keeping up. Well, yeah, when in, they don't bring them along for the ride, right? Exactly. In reality, that's exactly what it is. They're not part of the team. They haven't uh, embraced the whole team, realizing that uh, we as a team are responsible for testing activities, are responsible for the quality. And I think um, that's a really hard first learning for a lot of teams. Yeah, we see that. I mean, we see that a lot in quote unquote DevOps as well, right? Continuous delivery. Um, you know, at Mabel, we did our own dev test op survey last year, and we were surprised that tester stress level was higher on the testers who said they were on teams doing continuous delivery. Because continuous delivery is supposed to be calm and maintainable and sustainable. Um, and, you know, I started talking to people after that. And it's like, I was really surprised by that result. And, and it, just what Janet says, is they say, oh, we're going to do continuous delivery. So let's make our pipeline. Let's automate some tests. But testers, you keep doing what you do. We're not going to help you or train you or anything. Just You just keep on with what you were doing. What? But you have to be really fast now because we're going to release you know, twice a week or every day. And then they say, oh, the testers are a bottleneck and let's just get rid of them. And it's just ugh, so frustrating. <laughs> So just to play devil's advocate, though, about the idea of getting rid of all the testers, I think there is something um, like there's a kind of <laughs> shock that you can put into the system, right, in terms of making sure the developers realize that quality is their responsibility, too, if there is no safety net anymore. Well, that's absolutely there shouldn't be a safety net. I, I totally agree with that. Um, but I have been on two teams now that you would call high-performing teams and um, who use good development practices and have and have achieved continuous delivery and are doing all their own test automation and their own testing in, you know, for a while or still doing a lot because they only hired one or two testers. And I can tell you that their automated tests suck. They don't... I've seen developers write automated tests with no assertions. Hello. Um, you know... No. So I just, I mean, if they're really great at testing, then fine. But that's not what I've seen. And again, I'm, I'm talking about very talented de developers who pair program and do test-driven development. They do great at the unit level in terms of happy path testing. But they don't think about the edge cases. They don't explore. They don't do any manual exploring. Um, and, and then they're really shocked when they have serious problems in production. Okay. So, so maybe firing the testers isn't the answer, but... How do we get developers? Janet, what do you do when you go into those places? How do we, because this is what I often see is, is it's the QA team would really love the developers to be doing test-driven development and taking right. more responsibility for even just writing unit tests for their code. So, um, and, so, and they, and they, yeah. it feels impenetrable because the developers are either they've got a kind of arrogance of like, oh, we don't need to do that or they're under that pressure and they don't know how to do it. And what, what, what do we do yeah. about that? So one of the first things I do is correct their language, which I'm going to correct your language right now. <laughs> you mentioned, <laughs> you said the QA team. There is no such beast. If you are on a whole team, you might have somebody, uh, a tester 
or somebody relating to that role, right? You do not have a QA team. And so as soon as you start saying the QA team, you've already separated and segregated them completely um, and made them something different. If they are a team member, I don't care if you call I call myself a tester because that's what I identify with. Um, but a lot of times it's the language we use. And, and so part of it is um, demonstrating, part of it is showing how a, a tester can really add value. And, and so I, I encourage a lot of experimentation on teams. And uh, some of those, re those developers that are really stuck and say, I don't want to test, I don't want to do this, when they start seeing that they get way fewer bugs, because that's what they want to know is, why should I do that? When they get uh, better code out the door, fewer bugs, um, so less rework, that's all beneficial to them. And so testers can you know, start testing early in that loop by asking questions. QA should stand for question asker, right? Um, we got that from Pete Whalen, and I love it. So that's my, when people say QA, I just mentally say question asker, because that's one of the, the jobs they're supposed to do is ask questions early. And all of those things help. So it's by showing and um, experimenting what works for your team. Yeah. You need support from management too. I was really interested on my last team that, um, you know, when I started there, I just expected to pair with the developers and the development manager was like, oh no, you'll slow my developers down. <laughs> but as we move towards continuous delivery, you know, it's like, oh, we want to release twice a week. But when we try to do that, we're having terrible problems in production and there's not enough. The, de the development manager realized that part of the problem was not enough exploratory testing was going on because two testers and 30 developers doesn't scale. And so, okay, well, the developers should learn how to do exploratory testing. And so, first of all, they made that part of the developers, the skills they needed to learn to advance on their career path. So they had to have a certain competency at exploratory testing skills at each level. So that, so right there, they're giving the developers a message, you need to learn this, we're going to give you time to learn it, we're going to help you learn it, and, you know, and you will be rewarded for learning it. And then he finally freed us to pair with the developers um, so that we could pass on those skills. And then that also helped with their, you know, other testing too, because, you know, it's like, oh, and how about this negative test case? Or, gee, did you try that in uh, Safari yet? Because <laughs> you're working only in Chrome on the UI. So it really, really worked. It was really amazing to see how much better the quality got. So that's where I see a lot of testing um, roles moving to, is not playing the role of sole tester on a team, but test coach, test consultant, helping the team to learn. What, what do you think about the role of like automation engineer or developer in test? What do you think about that? Is that a healthy thing for teams to have? Personally, um, I would rather see the whole team take ownership because if you've got a person, an SDET or somebody to say your role is automation, they've automatically kind of withdrawn from that team um, dynamics again, right? You're pushing it off to somebody else. And so 
I would rather see it just be part of the we team. We have science to prove this now. It's always been my experience that when the developers and testers collaborate on the automation, it works the best. And um, the book Accelerate has a section on test automation. And in that section, they say that the high what correlates with high-performing teams is reliable automated tests. And the way that teams get reliable automated tests is the developers own them, the developers maintain them, they run them locally, they respond to test failures in, this, in the continuous integration. But it doesn't mean you should get rid of your testers because they need help from the testers in writing the tests and also testers help with all the manual testing activities. So I was really relieved to see that supported by data. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. The way I've always explained to people is that the the testers need to delegate the automation to the developers. Nice. So the testers oh, decide like what, yes. what needs to be tested, but then they get people who are good at writing code to make that happen for them. Exactly. And it's, yes. it's and it's a good way for them to start thinking about the the relationship differently as well. Because I always think that one of the kind of cultural poisons that we have is that QA people, tester people, are sort of regarded as being somehow less important, less less, just less, right, than developers. Probably get paid less. Um, and and just there's, there's there's something something really bad about that. I think yeah. they're just not valued so, as much. Yeah, one trend that I see, and it's not pervasive by any stretch, but is when a team recognizes the value of a good, I'm going to call it agile tester, somebody who does all of those things, those testers are paid as much as any programmer, if not more, because they're very hard to find. So I, I do see that happening in some so. It's, yeah, it's beneficial for the team and for the people on it to recognize that there is value. It's been a while since I've heard this, but I have heard people who are perceived as leader, leaders in our profession, in this agile community, say testers should be paid less than developers. So, yeah. yeah. What? It's pretty pervasive, oh, no. but I think it's, I think it's improved because, I mean, that was back when, you know, not too long after the, when the XP right. people thought they didn't need those stinking testers. So, you know, so I said up and down, up and down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So I know I was in a team not so long ago where somebody heard that testing is dead. We don't need the testers. So they fired all their testers. But within six months, they started hiring them back. Yeah. But of course, they hired them back at more money because <laughs> now they were all freelance contractors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, so that, so there's a, there's a sort of optimistic um, end to the conversation. Then, really, is is a as a person who is working in that in that role right now, um, all they need to do is read your book and start doing all the stuff that's in your book, or start experimenting, suggesting experiments yes. on the team with some of the ideas from your book, and 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 in that way, you're going to learn to be that coach, that advocate for for testing practice on the team. To some extent, yep. I would suggest that people go out and buy the book and read chapter 11 first because oh, that's, that's a great idea. That it's, got, it's got all of the, um, the – it's got your – you call them your trainers, but basically uh, well-known testers expressing their yes. opinion about how, how a tester's role has evolved over the, the past decade or so. Yeah, and, and all over the world, right? And yeah, um, I, that's my favorite chapter, yes. Yeah, that's good. Right, well, I think we do need to end it there before Theo drags us all away from the microphone. 
Um, oh. So is, b- before we do finish, is there anything we forgot to ask you that you, you feel like you really need to say? No. Reach out if you have any questions. Yeah, definitely. Get in touch. I'm Lisa Crispin on all the, in some of the social media outlets. I'm not on all of them, but um, always like to talk to people. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We're on, yeah. Yeah, we'll uh, make so, sure we put links in the show notes. Yeah, and we, we, okay. anyone listening should make sure that they subscribe to us on the podcast app and give us great reviews. Uh, and then, of course, you'll be able to see the show notes for this, uh, which will have all the links that were mentioned today, both by Matt and myself and by Lisa and Janet. Awesome. All right. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks for listening out there as well to you, dear listener. Hope you have a lovely day. Thanks yeah, for thanks having everybody. us. Thank you and goodbye.